Great to see you this morning. If you have your Bible, as our brother read for us, James chapter 1. And if you are a guest with us, my name is Jordan. I have the joy of serving as our lead pastor, one of our elders. If you're online with us, we're so glad that you have joined us through that means. And uh, we are walking in this time through the book of James. And today, coming to the third installment in the series, we are to chapter 1 and uh, verses 5 through 12. And the subtitle of our series is Active Faith. And one of the reasons we're saying that is because James is the show me pastor. You say that you're this, show me. You say that you're this, show me. You affirm that you're this, show me. In other words, the Christian life should be uttered from your words, but it should also be backed up in your life, that your walk and your talk should match. And where they don't, that's a problem. And so James is helping us live out our faith, have an active faith, a faith that is saying, I believe this, therefore I live this way. Let's pray together, and let's ask God to help us as we look at this passage before us. Our God, thank you so much for this time that you give us to open the bread of life together. We recognize that we cannot live by bread alone, but we, as your children, we find nourishment from the proclamation, the teaching, the exhortation, the challenge of your Word. And so, God, I pray by your Spirit that you would open it up to us and that uh, we would walk away today being challenged and that we would truly understand that there is a mindset, there is a posture that we must always walk in as your people, particularly when we're facing great challenges and great suffering. Lord, some of the people here right now are there. Some watching online are there Life is difficult right now, emotionally, physically, circumstantially, familial, in a whole host of other backgrounds. And yet, God, you are sovereign. You are faithful. So I pray that you would use this passage to afflict those who are comfortable in their faith, to challenge us so much that we would leave here in a heart of repentance, in a heart of faith. And then, God, would you use this word to comfort those who are currently afflicted, that are in the the throes of living in a fallen world and all that comes with that. We thank you that, above all else, for those of us who are yours, that this is not our home, but we are walking the pilgrim's way, and we are passing by. And while we're here, Lord, we want to, by your Spirit, watch you produce in us greater maturity and greater Christ-likeness as we wait for our blessed hope, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray for one among us who is not certain of their standing before you, and they don't have the assurance of their salvation that today you would grant it, God, that you would use the truthfulness of your word, the glories of the gospel to create new life and renewed life for those of us who know you. It's a joy to sing together, to recognize that we are free. 
We're not free, Lord, to live how we want. We've been freed from sin's tyranny, so now we can live our life the way you would want. So would you teach us today, Lord? We, we sit at your feet. What we are not, would you make us today through this text? And we ask it, Lord, in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, if you've been a Christian long, then I'm sure you've heard someone say, God won't give you more than you can what? God won't give you more than you can handle. And normally that sentiment, that comment is given from pastors, I've heard parents, different faith leaders, when someone comes to them and they're in the throes of a great challenge, a great trial. And someone puts their arm around them and says, well, just be comforted because God is not going to give you, the afflicted one, more than you can handle. And normally, I think when someone says that, they're thinking about 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when Paul says that he will give a way of escape for the one who is being tempted by sin. But when you think about, does God give us more than we can handle, what we always must ask ourselves as people of the book, as those who look to the Scripture as our absolute authority, is does that statement, does it measure up to what we see in the testimony of Scripture? Well, there are many individuals in Scripture based on what God put on them that would disprove the thought that God won't give you more than you can handle. And I would phrase it the other way back at you, and we'll close a little bit differently, but I would tell you this, God will give you more than you can handle. And one of the poster childs to that reality that God is going to put more than your shoulders can bear on you is the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul gives an autobiographical breakdown of he and his missionary team. They were planting churches, they're out in the ancient world, they're doing God's good work. And notice what Paul says in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 1. He says, for we, me and my missionary team, me and my boys, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But here's why. It was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Beyond strength there, that little Greek phrase, it means more than a human can handle. So God put more on Paul and his team than they could handle. And what we saw last week, friends, is when that is your reality, and it feels as though you're going under in your marriage, in your finances, in work situation, it doesn't seem as if it's ever going to get better, and it seems like the fire is turned up, and you could agree with this, that you feel like you want to die. That's what he said. He said, Paul said, I just, we felt like we wanted to die. There was so much on us. So, if if you feel like you want to die, then I think that's more than you can handle. But what Paul, the apostle, shows us is that quote is not true, 
But what the great thing is about our God is He gives us nourishment and He gives us perspective that when we face these things, there's a proper response that we should have. Notice chapter 1, verse 2, 3, and 4. We looked at it last week. The James says, count it all joy, my brothers. Notice when, when, when you meet trials, multicolored trials of various kinds. That should be your response, remember? And when you respond that way, here's the reason we need to respond this way. For you know, you, you know this by experience, literally. You know this as a believer that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness like perseverance, building stamina, building spiritual muscles, and let steadfastness have its full effect. And here's the result. We got the response, we got the reason, and here's the result if we will do this by the power of the Spirit, that you, you all, may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So as counterintuitive as it sounds, we can take joy in our trials. And I'm glad that he doesn't tell us in James what the trial is, because whatever you're going through, just fill in the blank. Count it all joy when you face this, when you face this. If it's hard, if it's difficult, if it's challenging, if it lets the wind out of your sails, if it makes you want to throw the towel in and quit or give up or fuss or cuss or complain, that's a trial. And what he says is, is that you can have joy in the midst of that because God is doing something in you to build you up, not tear you down. Remember, remember this, God tests you to make you stronger in Him. The enemy, as we'll see, will tempt you to destroy you, to make you weaker. And this is the thing about tests. As you get older in the faith, the test will not get easier, the test will get harder. So if you think you're going to ever graduate out of these trials, all my, my, I'm not going to say, uh, well, we'll just say a little older among us. You can testify that trials change with the whims and the turns of life, but they don't get easier, they just get different, amen? And they just many times get harder. But listen, God has built stamina in you, where what used to make you say, I got to go home and go to bed, now you actually get up and go to work, because God is building stuff in you. And He's every time He's putting muscles on you. You think about an athlete, when they're building muscle, um, they got to keep, put, keep putting the weight on you got to put, put the 25s on, you got, and then the 35s, and then the 45s, because you're building stamina, you're building muscle. I asked you last week if you want to be like Jesus, and we said yes, and the question then is, well, do you want more trials? Well, that's the goal. It's kind of like if I said, do you want to lose weight? Do you want to get in better shape? Do you want to have a little more pep in your step? You say, yeah, I'd, I'd like that. Well, are you interested in going to the gym and changing your diet and actually putting some trials on you? Most of us would say, I'm not interested in that. Well, that is the, the way to building physical change, and it is the way to building spiritual change. And so God uses these friends, not because He's down on you, but because He loves you, and He wants to grow you. And if you always had it easy, you, you would just become comfortable, and God's not into comfortable. He's into faithful. 
He's into building things in us. And so, this is the posture that we can have. Now, you remember He says you're lacking in, in, in nothing. So, it means that the, one of the reasons God is putting you through some things is because there's certain things you're lacking. And in order to get it, you got, God's got to put you through it to expose things in you that are not where they need to be. And that by doing that and you depending on Him and looking to Him for strength, He now begins to give you great hope and He is now maturing you and growing you. So our mindset must not be, i got to get out of this. The mindset should be, how can I go deeper in my love for the Lord? How can I get more committed to Him? And how can I find a deeper level of contentment in Him when everything around me is falling apart? You know God has a hold of you when everything is falling apart around you, but you're not falling apart. Now, you may fall apart initially when it happens, but that's part of the stamina building, right? It caught me off guard the first time. But man, I've learned to trust God that He's going to get me through this. And see, He's building stamina. And the great thing is, is none of us will ever graduate, as I said, from needing more tests and needing more trials. So if you ever think that's not going to be reality in this world, God loves you too much to leave you like you are. So God is not interested in changing your circumstances, watch this now, as much as using, his circum, using your circumstances to change you. And it makes all the difference if you shift your mind that way. And one thing you're lacking, God is using the trial to get you, but let me tell you something, friend, when you're going through it, there's something you really need if you're going to make it through it. Obviously, God's strength. Obviously, the presence and the power and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. But there's three things in this text that our brother read that I want you to see. The first of all is the believer's petition. So you're going through a trial, all right? Now, right now, you may say, I'm not going through a trial. Well, as I told you last week, you're getting ready to go in one, you're in one, or you're coming out of one. But either way, if you don't need this now, take good notes because you're going to need it sooner than you might think. The believer's petition. Notice the petition here. If any of you all, you Christians, lacks wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? What is wisdom? What is this that we're asking for? Well, I like this definition of wisdom. Wisdom is living life as God intended. To be a wise person means that you live your life as God intended. We know a lot of times people talk about wisdom being the application of knowledge. That's certainly good. But the result of, of living out the knowledge of God is you're going to begin to live your life the way that God intended. You're going to go through your trial, and people at work, people in your family, people in your church are going to watch you, and they're going to see, oh, that's how you approach trials, because you're living wisely. You're living the way that God intended. See, you were designed by a designer. You were created by a creator. You were engineered by an engineer. And only he knows how life can flourish. 
And so what he does is he puts you in a trial and then he compels you to ask him for wisdom so that you can know in the moment how to live life in a way that would honor him and glorify him. And then he gives you books like the book of James, which is called wisdom literature. In other words, there's 60 commands here in the book of James, in the 108 verses here, and they're not do's and don'ts. They're not do these things and you'll have a successful life. No, these words are words that will give you nourishment to live a wholehearted life in Jesus. These commands are not to be accomplished in your own power and your own strength. So if you're like, Jordan, I'm going through this, man. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know how difficult it is. Yeah, you're right. But you have a God who knows. You have a God who sees you. You have a God who's put his very spirit in you and will empower you to do that which you say, I can't do it. And that's the whole point of the quote. He will put more on you so you will realize, as Paul did, I've got to stop relying on me so much. Friends, so many of us rely on ourselves way too much. We rely on our education. We rely on our background. We rely on our experience. And those things are all good and can be good. But there's got to be a dependency on the Lord that goes past what you have achieved or what you can muster up. And when that happens, God is going to give you wisdom. He's going to. And so wisdom is God's going to help you live life the way he wants you to live it. That's what it means. To live wisely is you're going to begin to live your life in a way that God intended. Now notice what James says in verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, notice, let him ask God. Now literally it reads, let him ask the giving God. Let him ask the giving God. It, friends, it is God's very nature to be a giver. It's his very nature. In some religions... Their God is a taker. Our God is a giver. He is a giver. And we know that John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that He, and this is the greatest gift that He could have given us, what this passage tells us is God wants to give you wisdom. He wants to put you in a trial so that you can grow, so that you can mature, so that you'll call out to Him so He can give you and do what He does. He wants to pour out wisdom. He wants to show you, friend, what is your next step and what it is that He wants you to do. In chapter 1, verse 17, James will say in a few weeks, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow or due to change. Did you know the most consistent person you have going for you right now is your God. Everything else changes, including you. Did you know you're changing? Some for good and quite honestly, some for bad. You're changing. People change. Circumstances change. Government change. Churches change. Pastors change. Teachers change. But the one thing we know about our God is He does not change. And He will give you, He will bestow upon you generously if you'll just ask Him. Many things in our lives change, and our God does not change. And one of the particular gifts that God loves to give is, notice He says, wisdom. Uh, John Blanchard said it this way, quote on the screen, he says, it is characteristic of the unbeliever to see God as a clenched fist. I'm not giving. And it is the characteristic of the believer to see God with an open hand. So how do you see God? 
Do you see that he's calling you to these things and he's taking things from you? Or do you see it as he's actually so good that he's put you in situations so that he can give things to you, namely wisdom, so that you can make it through this? Notice he says, if you do this, he'll give generously. Friends, that means without hesitation. And he gives without expecting a favor in return. He doesn't say, you dummy, I asked you, told you this already. When are you going to do it? There are so many perceptions of God that we, from, a, from, from human beings that we put on God, when God, yes, He will hold us accountable. But what this phrase means is that He generously, He, he wants to give to His children. He wants you to, to, bet, to ask of Him so that He can bless you with giving. God delights to giving His children wisdom. Let me ask you something about your kids. Do you enjoy giving them good gifts? Do you enjoy that? I hope so. I hope you enjoy giving good gifts. But some of us grew up with a dad, quite honestly, that he gave gifts, but it always seemed like there was a string attached. And so, yeah, you received it, but you thought, I'm a little nervous, should I take this, should I not? Because he made you feel guilty for taking it, or I worked all day for this, here you go, you you know, uh," and it makes you feel as though I'm going to give it to you, but there's a sense in which I don't know if you really want to give it to me, and yet that's not how our God is. God says, I give generously, I give freely to my children. I want to bless you by showing you what to do with the person at work that you want to leave because they just get on your ever-living nerves cry out to me for wisdom so that you can live life the way I intended you to live it in this season of your life. You remember Jesus says in uh, Luke 11 that if an earthly father knows how to give good gifts, how much more does the heavenly father give good gifts to his children? Christian friend, if you're in a trial right, and if you're in a trial right now, I want to ask you, do you think that you have it under control? Well, the way we'll know is how's your prayer life in the midst of the trial? Because the way that you get wisdom is by asking God through the means of prayer. Show me how much you pray, show you how much I pray in the midst of the trial, and that will answer the question, do we really trust God or not? Many of us are so self-sufficient, are we not? We're so self-sufficient, and yet God wants us to be God-sufficient. So you know what God will do? He will begin to grind you down as His child so that you will see you cannot do this and you need me. He wants to reveal His belovedness to us. He wants to reveal His fatherly love to us. And oftentimes, the way in which we see God the, the, the most clearly and the most beautifully is in the midst of a great trial, and God is holding us up. God is strengthening us. He is lifting us up. He is holding us. If that's the case of where you're at today, praise God. But I pray that the book of James is going to make us pray more. I really do. I pray the book of James is going to make us pray more. We're going to call out to God more. We're going to ask Him for wisdom more. We're going to tell God, I don't have this. I need you. And redirect our hope in Him. And I notice who He'll give wisdom to, to all. Now, it's qualified. It's not to all people. It's to all Christians. 
This is who he's writing the letter to. The all is categorized by the ones he's writing to, all of the Christians, and by extension, you and I, that he will give wisdom to all. In other words, you don't need to be a varsity Christian. You don't need to be a super Christian. You don't need to be one who is working on your doctorate spiritually. You just have to be in the family of God, and God says, based upon you being my child and I being your father, if you'll ask me, I will give to all. And notice without reproach. That is, He won't rebuke you. He won't say, well, I've told you this a thousand times. God doesn't scold us when we ask for wisdom. He doesn't say, no, I've given you enough. That's not how God is. So, I think you should write this down. God is ready to give me, I'm sorry, God is ready, able, and willing to give more than I'm willing to ask. God is more willing to give than you and I are willing to ask. God says, if you, if you, give, if you ask, I will give, and I will give without reproach. And notice, it will be given to him. But notice six, here's a warning, let him ask in faith or her, him or her, in faith with no doubting. And this means don't doubt God's character. Don't doubt that He's good. Don't doubt what He says about Himself. He really is. So when you approach God for wisdom, you approach Him knowing that He loves you because He's made provision for you in Jesus And second of all, you approach Him knowing that as His kid, He wants to give you wisdom, and so you're coming from a posture of, if I go to God, I know He's going to show me what to do. The word doubt here means a divided loyalty. Divided loyalty. So trust God's character. Trust it alone. Don't don't be divided in your heart. Either you trust Him in His character or you don't. That is, don't seek God on Monday, when you, when you really need Him, and then seek something else other days, or seek other means of, of getting wisdom, God forbid horoscopes and of the such, but something of that way. No, be loyal. If, you're, if, if, if you belong to God, and if anybody belongs to God, would you say amen? So if you belong to God, go to your God, go to your Father, go to your Savior, go to the Spirit of God and ask Him for wisdom, and He's not going to tell you, no, I don't want to tell you. He's not going to say, oh, I wish you, uh, He's going to give to you liberally. He's going to show you what to do. But don't doubt. Notice, here's what a doubting person is. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because he's double-minded. In other words, double loyalties. Are you loyal to God or are you loyal to something else? So if you're loyal to God and you pour out to God, then He will show you. But if you have divided loyalties, you will be unstable. You will be, if I may say it, schizophrenic. You'll be here, you'll be here, you'll be here, you'll be here. But if you'll commit your way to the Lord as His child, this is why the title of this sermon is The Way of Wisdom the way of wisdom. God will light the path up in front of you. Lord, I don't know what to do. This is what your word says. I need wisdom. I'm asking. And then he'll show you. He'll light it up in front of you. He'll he'll show you what to do. Raise your hand if you've ever been the recipient of God's wisdom on a matter when you just did not do. You saw the scripture. You prayed about it. And God poured out wisdom. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. Amen. So he wants to do that. He loves to do that because he is your father. So that is the believer's petition. 
The idea is ask and keep asking. Ask and keep asking for wisdom. Second of all, notice the believer's perspective. Not just our petition, but we, we, we've got to keep our perspective in mind here. Because James now gives a case study of a particular trial going on in the congregation. Notice verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So James is going to give us two different economic situations here of two different individuals in this congregation. They boast in his exaltation. Um, the NIV renders that humble circumstances. Let a man boast in his humble circumstances. That, 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 that's a really good way to say it. But the person here is, boast in your exaltation. He's talking to poor people here. He's talking to those who don't have a lot. He's talking to those who don't have the means that they wish that they had. And James says, listen, you're in that trial of not having what you need. Listen, boast in your exaltation. Boast in your exaltation. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means boast in your union with Christ. Boast in the fact that one day when Jesus comes, you will be raised and you will be exalted. Boast in that exaltation. This is what Mary would sing. Mary, the mother of Jesus, would sing in her Magnificat, chapter 1, Luke, verse 52. She says, He, Jesus, has brought the mighty from their throne." And then he would go on to say, and exalted those of humble estate. That's the same word here. In other words, one day there will be a great reversal, friends, a great reversal, where the poor in this world will be exalted because they were rich in faith. The poor will be exalted. Those who didn't have a lot, but they were rich in faith, one day they'll be exalted. And we'll say, wow, they didn't have a lot on earth, but boy, they were rich in heaven. You'll see that on the day of exaltation. And, and, and listen, we need to make sure that we're not ultimately here, if you're in this room or in that congregation, and you don't financially have what you wish that you had, uh, we, we need to always be evaluating our lives properly. So, we don't evaluate our worth or dignity on our economic status, but we evaluate our lives based on our posture toward God. So, you could not have much and be very wealthy in the eyes of God when it comes to your faith and your trust and your love of Him. In fact, James chapter 2, we're going to see uh, next in the weeks to come that there were poor people in this congregation, and they made them sit in the back. They wouldn't let them come up to the front of the congregation. And they knew the, obviously, they had some way of knowing who was poor, maybe based on what they were wearing, based on uh, a number of different factors we'll get into when we deal with that text. But evidently, there was something that prevented them in the eyes of the wealthy that they didn't have much. And they were telling them, listen, you sit in the back. We got somewhere for you folk to sit. You don't sit up front. And James says, well, why are you doing that? He'll tell them, why are you doing that? They're rich in faith, which means they're heirs of the kingdom. So that means right now, friend, if your economics are not great and your current trial is connected to a lack of possessions, you can still count it all joy, can't you? You can count it all joy in the midst of that trial because your boasting is not in your riches. Your boasting is in Jesus Christ. Your boasting is in your spiritual right standing before God. One day, your humble situation will change. It will. When Jesus comes again, you will boast in the fact that I have been exalted. And I, was, I didn't have a lot on earth, but I was rich in heaven, and it won't be seen many times until that day. 
Then he turns in verse 10 to the rich person. Notice, and the rich boast in his or her humiliation. James is basically saying the same thing that he told the poor folk. He's calling the rich to ultimately evaluate their life, not on their wealth, but on their spiritual status before God. And let me tell you, friend, if your ultimate identity, your ultimate worth, your ultimate value among God's people is that you are, are boasting in your wealth, then this is not something that you should be boasting in. For one day, there will be a great equalizer, and so he says, boast in your humiliation. Boast one day that you'll, you'll be humble. Boast one day that, that your faith will be turned to sight. Now, when we talk about wealthy in our day, friend, all of us in this room, uh, compared to 98% of the world, are wealthy. So we could talk about different statuses of wealth and different lower blue class, middle class, upper middle class, white class. All, but the reality is, is that this applies to our congregation when it comes to our heart and our posture before God. And what James is saying is, is if, if, if your trial you're experiencing is connected to your possessions, then look to God and don't boast in those things anyway, but boast in God. Now, listen to what James says. This is what we should all do. Uh, I'm sorry, Jeremiah chapter 9. You should memorize this verse. Jeremiah says, let not the wise boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him boast in this, that he understands and knows me. So, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, this is all of our directives, boast in the Lord. But notice back to James, verse 10, he tells us how to do this. Notice, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and it withers, and the grass never falls, and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. So notice the rich man also has a trial. In your wealth, you can have trials. Uh, as one man says, more money, more problems. It's a mistake to think that you can only have trials if you're poor. You can have trials in simplicity. You can have trials in complexity. Sometimes you go from one season of doing well, right? And the next season, it's like we're paycheck to paycheck. So don't think that you having a lot will get you out of trials, and don't think that you not having much will get you out of trials. But in the midst of wherever you're at economically, boast in the Lord. Find joy in the Lord. Boast that one day we are all going to be equal in an economic status. And while we wait, we ask God for wisdom on how to maneuver through this. This is why I love Proverbs 30, verse 8 and verse 9. Notice on the screen, give me neither poverty nor riches. See that? Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full. That's a temptation to the rich. Lest I be full, and then I deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor. Here's the temptation of the poor. And steal and profane the name of my God. Notice in both cases, Regardless of economic state, honor God. Honor God. So there's the believer's petition. In the midst of economic trial, the believer's perspective. And finally, notice the believer's promise. Blessed is the man 
who remains steadfast under trial. That's the same word back up in chapter 1, steadfast under trial, for when he or she has stood the test, he or she will receive the crown of life. Now, I take the crown of life to mean the crown that is life, the crown that is life. That is, for those who are faithful, who keep looking to the Lord for strength, who remain steadfast, that God will carry us through many toils and many snares. And the reality is, is that one day we will get the ultimate life when we are with Jesus, and there is no pain, there is no sickness, and everything sad will become untrue. But we get the life now. Remember this, eternal life is qualitative and quantitative. In other words, eternal life is it's quantitative in the sense that it's a state we're going to enjoy with Jesus, but it's qualitative as well. And eternal life is not something you're waiting for. Eternal life is something you've already been given. Eternal life is connected to the eternal life of Jesus Christ. And if you're in Jesus Christ, then you have life and you remain steadfast, you're really going to get life one day. And I, I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. He says that love endures all things. Notice, it says God has promised this to those who love Him. Notice who stood the trials of life. Notice who stood in there and hung in there and didn't quit and allowed the Lord to have His way. Notice these are the ones who love the Lord. I love that. I love that. I love the way that the faithful are described here, lovers of God. And I think that's the question when you go through difficulty, is it not? Do you still love Him? Do you still find joy in Him? Some of us, our relationship with the Lord has grown very stale. We just go through the motions. And yet God, in His grace, wants to use trials to re-energize our understanding that He is a good, benevolent, gracious, generous Father. Come to Him. Others of us are putting way, like our sanity and our joy is connected to our economic status. I know you got to eat. I know you got to live. Amen, me too. But we cannot allow, friends, the economic reality of where we're at to begin to hurt the perspective that we serve a God who wants to use even economic challenges to point us to the greater reality of the riches that we have in heaven. And finally here, this is the beautiful thing, is the promises is, whereas we are waiting, we are waiting as we endure the toils and the snares and what we are reminded of, I hope, is that Jesus endured the ultimate trial of the cross, that God punished Jesus on our stead, in our place. And now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And let me tell you what Jesus is doing right now. He's praying for, his, he's praying for us. He's praying for us. Jesus is praying for you right now that you'll remain steadfast. I mean, what does that do to you? What does that do to you to think the sovereign king of the universe, I'm on his prayer list. He's praying for me. Friend, let that encourage you. 
Let that reinvigorate you. Let that stir you to realize that 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, it says, this light momentary affliction. This is light. I know, it's, I know it can be heavy and it feels heavy, but it's usually connected to your emotions, right? And I'm not saying it's not hard. I hate that you're going through it. I know what some of you are going through. I hate it. I wish I could change it, but yet I'm not God. God is sovereign. He's good. He's faithful. And it's light. It's light. It's light compared to what? To the eternal glory that is to come pales in comparison. I'm going to tell you, if you'll keep looking to His grace to sustain you, one day your faith will turn to sight, and you'll be so thankful that you held on. And, and you know what you'll realize on that day? Actually, He was holding on to me. I wasn't holding on to Him. And it will make you praise Him all the more. So I hope that you will put an end to the belief that God won't give you more than you can handle. And let me give you a better phrase to say. You tell people when they're going through difficulty. God will give you all the grace you need to honor Him in this situation. That's what you tell them. Say, brother, sister, I am so sorry that you're going through this. You cry with them. If they're ugly crying, you ugly cry too. If they're, you, you get down there with them in the trenches and you weep with them over the pain. But do not tell them. Do you know how, how bad that makes someone? They're going through it, and you tell them, well, God won't give you more than you can. And they're like, well, it sure seems like it. But what you could tell them is, is listen, God will give you grace to remain faithful in this. And I love you, and I'm praying for you, and I'm a phone call, I'm a text away. If we'll do that really, really well, God will use this congregation to grow us all up. And we won't give people shoddy promises that the Bible doesn't promise to anybody. And we can stand in faith together as we ask God to produce in us what we cannot produce in ourselves. So God will give you all the grace you need. And let me remind you of that right now. I don't know what you're going through, but God will give you all the grace you need to remain faithful to Him. And He'll do it by His Spirit. So keep looking to Him. Thank you, Lord, so much. For your goodness, your grace toward us, by faith we believe these words to be true, that you are good, that you are generous, that you are an ever-present help in your needy children's time of need. God, we are so needy, and we're grateful that in our neediness that you love to glorify your good name by giving us a bounty of wisdom as moms and dads and parents and retirees and empty nesters and employees and church members and singles and a number of scenarios, Lord, you will give the grace. And, and as we saw last week, that we know this to be true. Lord, any of us who have been following you for any time at all, you are such a good shepherd, and you take such good care of your children. So, Lord, would you give your grace now to your children? Would you give your grace to me? Lord, all of us are facing something right now that we, we want to throw the towel in and possibly quit, but God, we don't have liberty from you to do that. We just don't. But what we do have is the assurance of your grace in the midst of that which is hard. And grace is power. Saving grace, but also sanctifying grace. Sustaining grace. Thank you, Lord, that you do that. And that even now, you're doing that in our lives, in our marriages, in our homes and our grandparenting. 
wherever we're at today, and our sense of loss, our sense of regret, our sense of looking in the past and wishing things were different, or a really blind look into the future and imagining things that may not be what you have for us. So Lord, we thank you that you are a now God. You love to give grace now. Give us this day our daily bread. And would you sustain us this week? Lord, would you help us as a congregation of believers here at PVC? Would you help us to keep encouraging each other? Help us not to give faulty, unbiblical promises to one another in the midst of hardship. Help us to point to the God of all grace, the God of all hope. We need wisdom, Lord. Big time, big time, big time, big time. And we thank you that you love to give big grace. Thank you most of all that you are a giver and that you would give your one and only son to die in the death of sinners like us. And Holy Spirit, would you awaken need in the room? for those who have never tasted and seen that you are good in the gospel. And above all, as we sing this closing song, Lord, would you help us respond recognizing that Jesus, you are better than our most awful day and you're better than our most awesome day. For you, Jesus, are the same yesterday, today, forever. You do not change. Help us rest and that good character, and not be unstable in our ways this week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Can we stand, dear friends, and sing this as a response?